back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can read my movie reviews and interviews in print and online around the globe 24-7, including on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, for one hour or when Steve Lee shows up an hour and a half, uh, and, you know, for those of you, you know, I know we have a lot of Academy members, a lot of sound guys. Steve is the creator and founder of the Hollywood Sound Museum, and he's going to be joining us again in, in, within a few weeks, I believe, with more news and announcements about what's happening with the Hollywood Sound Museum. So I'm very excited. He's always so much fun to have on the show, and who knows, maybe he'll bring an Oscar or two back that we can play with uh, again. So, um, but yes, but for an hour every week. And if you can, hey, and if you miss us live, iTunes, BehindTheLensOnline.net, Stitcher, and other audio platforms that are out there. Plus, we've got, there are two channels in China that pick us up and air the show um they embed the show and it's delayed and a YouTube channel in Brazil as well. I found out. So we are really spanning the globe. And of course I love our live listeners uh, who are consistently tuning in from Italy, Moscow, and a few other places in Europe, along with those of you here in the United States. And today's show, I real I, I'm very, very happy with the exclusive interview you're going to hear uh, on today's show. One of my favorite people, Dermot Milroney. Um, sometimes it takes a while before we manage to find time to sit down and talk about projects. But when we do, uh, we have a great time. And uh, that's exactly what we we recently had last week, talking about his latest film, I Still See You, uh, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But at the half hour mark, it's October, World Series time, baseball. Writer-director Michael Doniger is going to join us live at the half-hour mark of the show. Talk about his new film, Brampton's Own, all about love and baseball. And I know the jury is out. What's more important, love, baseball, or the love of baseball? So, I mean, it... it it's it's out this Friday on the 19th, so I can't wait to talk to Michael about the film um, and for you to hear about Dermot. I do want to tell you right up front, put November 2nd on your calendars, people. Bohemian Rhapsody opens on November 2, and I got to tell you, it is the cinematic experience of the year. Reviews are embargoed until the 23rd. So I'm going to say that, and let's just say that after I screened it the other day, I have Queen playing on constant looping and replay on every device I have. Um, this film, it will rock you. 
Um, no doubt about it. So put November 2nd on your calendars. This is a film you do not want to miss. An Oscar-worthy performance by Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury. Um, so we'll talk more about that. I'm going to be doing interviews um, with some of the amazing craftsmen. Uh, Julian Day, the costumer. Tom Siegel, the cinematographer. Uh, I believe Graham King, the producer. And Gwillem Lee, who plays Brian May. And let me tell you, folks, when you see him, it's like the time machine. We've gone back in a time machine. Uh, he is a perfect doppelganger for a younger Brian May. So we'll talk more about Bohemian Rhapsody after the embargo, review embargo lifts and as we get closer to release. But I'm, I cannot wait for everyone to see that. And of course, First Man opened this weekend. And for those of you who might be watching on our Facebook live stream, okay, I am wearing the new Buzz Aldrin Ventures 50th anniversary Apollo 11 t-shirt, moon landing t-shirt, one of them. Um, First Man, exceedingly well done film, very high production values. Damien uh, Chazelle has done an amazing job, as has Ryan Gosling portraying Neil Armstrong. But, number one, the film is is very long. Be prepared. Number two, if you lived through and you sat up and you watched the moon landing in 1969, when you leave this film, you will not feel the same euphoria, exuberance, joy, awe, wonder that you felt watching man land on the moon, Neil Armstrong take those first steps, and plant the American flag. Oh, yeah. Planting the American flag. Seems that's been omitted from the film. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion out there about that. I am one of the ones who find, who am not happy that that seminal moment in history was chosen to be omitted from the film. I think that's a very important part of history, uh, of Armstrong's story, of Aldrin's story. Because it was that seminal moment, that single moment, that is most one of the two most identifiable. And it is the one that spurred and inspired other countries around the world to say, we can do it too. We want to get in the space race. Um, that, was a, that, that moment was a symbol of inspiration and hope that unified the globe. When you talk about wanting to make a film that is quote-unquote universal for all, you don't leave out one moment that truly did unify the world. Uh, but it is it is an amazing movie. It's an interesting movie. But as I said, it's very long. There's a lot of technical aspects to it. Um, but well worth seeing. And I do expect to hear First Man come up in, in uh, awards nominations in the various guilds and critics associations and possibly even the Academy as the next couple months progress. So stay tuned for that. Right now, though, we're going to take a short break only because Pam got in some really cool PSAs and we just want to hear them. So take a listen and we'll be back. And then we're going to talk more about Dermot Mulroney. And you're going to hear my exclusive interview with him then. A powerful threat. 
calls for a greater response. When there's a battle, bring strength. When there's a problem, seek answers. When there is doubt, give hope. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. And we are back. You're listening to Behind the Lens on AdrenalineRadio.com. And hey, don't forget, if you go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, there's a live stream on there because station owner and, and manager... Nick Federoff really likes his toys and likes to play with social media like that. So you can watch a stream on Facebook Live as well. Not that it's that exciting watching me sitting here, but it's entertaining sometimes. Right now, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about I Still See You. This is one of the smartest thrill, supernatural sci-fi kind of thrillers I've seen in, in quite a while. Uh, it is directed by Scott Spear, who is known best for Step Up Revolution and Step Up All In. It is written by Jason Fuchs based on the novel Break My Heart a Thousand Times by Daniel Waters. The premise, it were set nine years after an apocalyptic event. Millions were killed. However, because of the very nature of the event uh, and the scientific properties that were involved that caused the event and who knows, this could actually come into play with what Thanos was doing with his glove and people disintegrating in Avengers 4. We'll find that out in the spring. But everybody that disappe- disappeared or died in this event, they have remained on the earth in ghostly form. And they repeat and appear every day, every day at the same time, in the same place, doing the exact same thing when the event occurred and they disappeared. Um, They are now called spectral remnants. And there is a matter of fact as sitting down to breakfast and looking across the table and there's your father sitting there, which our 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 protagonist, Ronnie, played by Bella Thorne, that's what she sees every day and she's obsessed with trying to communicate with her father. We have a professor and scientist August Bittner, who has spent his, he has spent years studying spectral remnants. That character is the one played by, by by Dermot, and as the film develops, you find out why he is so fascinated, and what his connection is to these spectral remnants. There is also he is one of the proponents of. There has to be a way to communicate because that's something that the remnants can't do. They cannot communicate and you cannot communicate with them until one communicates with Bella Thorne's character of Ronnie. And that sets everything in motion after this slow burn buildup in the first act. It kicks into high gear in the second act and then the third act. 
is where Dermot's character really takes off. We see him in Act 1. He kind of goes away in Act 2, and then he's back with a total and complete character, surprising character shift. Great performance in Act 3 as this plays out. The cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. Um, Paul Covington's editing is amazing. Um, it, it is tight, it is sharp, and it really helps keep you on the edge of your seat and wondering exactly what's unfolding. And you never know where these remnants are going to appear. And uh, that's part of, part of the edge that keeps building in the film. So I had a chance to talk to Dermot about this role. So take a listen to what he had to say about this. And of course, according to him, and I have to agree, one of the most beloved Hallmark Christmas movies of all time. Dermot! Hello, Debbie Lynn. How are you? I am so happy to be talking to you again. The last time we got to chat was for Insidious 3. Hey, there you go. Um, nice to speak with you again. Thanks for your support. On oh, that. my God. That one's, that one's super popular. <laughs> I love your performance in I Still See You. Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, well, what do you want to know about it? Ask me anything you like. Well, I, uh, I really enjoyed I Still See You, too. I'll tell you what, sometimes I don't see the movies before I have the... Uh, discussions about it, so I'm prepared to support this film. I saw it with an old friend of mine who happened to be in town with his 14-year-old son, who's a horror fan, and this kid loved it and fell for everything, so I thought uh, that was a great sign. I actually had like a, what you'd call a very tiny, small test test audience, (laughs) and it passed with flying colors. I was thrilled. But you had the perfect test audience, though, a 14-year-old horror fan. That is the perfect. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, my big question, just looking at the things you picked up since we last talked, things like American Horror Story, um, Into the Dark. I don't know if part of um, the insidious genre rubbed off on you, but my as I'm watching your performance here, I kept thinking... I wonder if, if Dermot picked anything up from working with Lynn Shay and her character of Elise and dealing with things from the other world. Oh, if I, if I had half, <laughs> half the pedigree that Lynn Shay has in the horror genre world, I, 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 could, I could ride that one out of town. Just... I, I could call it a day right there. She owns it. Well, I got to tell you, my friend, you truly... As August Bittner, you find this incredible balance from Act 1 to Act 3. You come across this wonderful Karen teacher that, my God, I wish I had teachers like Bittner when I was in school. I know, so in touch with the people, with the young people, but also mild-mannered in a way. Yeah, and that's one of the, the great things. And the dedication to this whole idea of REM, spectral remnants... This part of the story I just found so fascinating. I'm so glad. I think that's really the thing that um, is um, distinctive about this movie mm-hmm. as a ghost movie or a supernatural thriller is that idea that they repeat themselves every day in the same position, same time, 
uh, the actual structure in the story of the remnants appearing every day, same time, mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is really what makes this not only like an interesting horror movie, but it's the very thing that hooks you on, um, on the real part of the story, yep. which is that sense of loss that everybody has in some way or will in some time in their life. So um, I think it's got a real get-it-under-your-skin quality uh, for that reason in, in, a couple, you know, in a couple of ways that add up to that really... I mean, it, it's very, it's very sensory, just like if you hear a song, every time you hear it, you think of, you know, a loss or a happy moment here. And what even adds to this whole idea of the, of the spectral remnants appearing at the same time in the same place every day is that everybody can see them. And it's very matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean by mild manner. Oh. I mean to be, um. Under, underneath the character I play. I mean that it's uh, it's all just part of everybody's day now, yeah. and that uh, really helps this uh, bizarre world that the film creates. It really makes it believable. All the like breaking news and special reports, that all happened eight, nine, ten, twelve years ago. Yeah. In that middle time in a, in a, in a society where it's just beginning to deal with the this as a permanent status mm-hmm. it's really cool um, this is from a novel that was popular too with a different title yeah like, and my heart a thousand times so that that was well written to this storyline and they uh, it's not exactly the same in the film ultimately as it was in the book but uh, the you know all the bones are from the book and it's really it really works in the movie you know and it's so rare that we have adaptations that really Either they try and do everything that's in the book, or they stray so far from the book that you wonder, where is the book? But here, to have all those structural bones, as you say, that are, you know, they're integral, and the integrity of them remains for the cinematic world. The one small change they made from the book to the the screen... um, I'm happy they did because other yeah, I think the book the, the character of August Bittner was a much more was older scarier kind of guy in the town um, they made him younger they made him my age so yeah. that's why I'm that's why I'm glad they did that so that I could play the part well they made him younger one of those names too it's got that character name August Bittner Bittner yeah Mr. Bittner is just so good <laughs> taps right into that that old haunted house uh, uh Yeah, we all have. It certainly does. You know, what did you think when you first got this script and you start reading it? You're going through Act One, and hey, August, he's a dedicated teacher. He's great. He's wonderful. We don't really see him in Act Two. Then we get to Act Three. I I just have to imagine that you were sitting there and you couldn't turn the pages fast enough. That's exactly what happened. I couldn't turn the pages fast enough. It, it, it accelerates, you know, it really draws you in because you do have to uh, sort this through intellectually. Mm-hmm. And I'll even say reading the script was, uh, it's, it, um, I guess it's just a great version going from book to script to screen. It, um, it, it, reading the script was harder to pull some of the details out because it's such a visual movie mm-hmm. um, that uh, not that I was confused by it ever but it was a great journey reading it uh, just as much as it was uh, seeing it. Did 
Did not you? a very good answer. Sorry about that. That's a really good answer. <laughs> you know, and I'm glad that you. I just I'm, kind of trail off. I'm glad that you saw the film, and because it is so visual, and I'm that third act. You've got underwater scenes, and I have to say, the cinematography in this film is gorgeous. It really is, um, and that's credit uh, also, especially to Scott Spear, the yeah. director, who just insisted on great um, angular uh, graphic novel type framing yeah. and cinematography. So that's a real appeal for this movie too. Not to say that the horror genre isn't just full of awesome shades and shadows, and, and you know. Um, but, but this one does a great job of the architecture of each shot. It's really well thought out. Mm -hmm. You'll see it's, uh, I mean, it's well made that way. It's beautiful. The production values are so highly polished. And when we get underwater... I particularly enjoyed uh, the scenario in the laboratory. Yes. I thought that set was really cool and ominous and kind of science fiction, just a touch of science fiction mm -hmm. that I really appealed to me when you saw the, the ducks and the pipes and that big sort of um, collider in there. Mm -hmm. And of course, watching it... that was really effective in a, like a movie way. I thought that was really cool. Well, yeah, and of course the fact that we're seeing it most of it in black and white initially, which gives an even creepier, more dated feel to it. Exactly. We, that old, bitter old scientist character. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, you guys, quite quite it's a trio. <laughs> that, I mean, very crafty. Now, I'm curious, because yeah. you have underwater scenes. Did you actually do those yourselves, or did they bring in a stunt double for you? Well, they had stunt doubles for all of us, of course, and then even in addition to that, a safety swimmer, diver for each of us. So um, they um, they do it only in a very particular, very well thought out, uh, well trained way. Mm -hmm. um, and we all were confident to do it ourselves, and that's us underwater, with the exception of a few of the very wide shots. Right. There's one of the, the great shot where you see all four figures mm -hmm. um, from way back underwater, basically a, a, a supernatural tug of war underwater. Um, that, you know, not to give it away, but that particular shot obviously uh, required uh, swimming, breath-holding doubles, you know, right. stunt swimmers, yeah, stunt swimmers. So how long so they doubled all of us for that. Everything else, me screaming and being dragged <laughs> underwater is all me. It's amazing. <laughs> so how long can you hold uh, your, right. how long can you hold your breath for underwater, Dermot? <laughs> well, um, I was past a minute and a half. Wow. Yeah, which, you know, some people do it for seven and eight minutes. Yeah, well, they're crazy. The actually, they had those people in to train us. Wow. Not that we witnessed that that day, but um, they have the contest competitions. There's, like, world-class breath-holding underwater. Yeah, there's a whole, whole, there's a whole world out there of people who are expert in this. Um, so we were well looked after, which I would like to report. That's, that's always good to hear. It's a great a safe job of it. It's all worked together in tandem, and, it, and it's a well-supported, safe uh, enterprise. It's amazing what they set up. For yeah. Those, uh, trace that back. There's, there's shots that are on a stage with blowing snow mm -hmm. uh, above on the ice that breaks. So really that little fall 
was done with stunt doubles for she and mm -hmm. myself. Uh, oh. But even before that, we had shot outdoor on ice in, uh, you know, in snow, in freezing conditions. So they really three full sets to get us into the water. Wow. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty ingenious sequence, yeah. And it's just beautifully cut together. And, you know, and never That's once... That's what I mean. When oh. I saw it, it's just fantastic. So it's really... And it's really a crafty movie that way. Really pulled off the tall order into shooting that kind of stuff. And you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. The movie is, you don't have a chance to breathe. You are on tenor hooks oh, this entire oh, movie. I'm so tickled that, that you get the movie and that you like it. I hope you spread the word far and wide. And I think they're doing um, doing the damn just to get it out to everybody. Ten cities or more, I think. And of course, uh, across all other platforms, and I think that's next Friday. Yeah, I mean this this movie should really be opening wide. It's that good. Thank you. Well, you will see how it does in the theaters, and what uh, you know what's important these days is those you know ratings and box office. All of that is a whole different playing field uh, yep. now, anyway. So, what the heck? As long as it gets to the people, and uh, you know. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll go on making movies like this anytime. I really enjoy it. There's a connection factor in horror movies that is different than regular dramas or comedies and stuff like that. So it's really been fun for me coming out of in cities. And, hey, if you really like movies that are weird, the one yeah. that nobody has ever seen is The Rambler. You, you just didn't set yourself down at night and you want to see the, like, gory, bizarre, uh -huh. psycho, weirdo movie, look up The Rambler oh. and look at that one. If you're an actual, like... I love Nobody stuff. ever saw it from 2013. I love hey, films like that. But you know what I love? Oh, check out The Rambler. Oh, I will now. Now that you've told me about it, I will. You know, something that I'm curious about, Dermot, you've always, you know, over the years, I've, I've seen you grow as an actor. I've seen you expand your repertoire and, you know, stretch yourself. And like in the past five years or so, you're really, really pushing yourself with these very intelligently and smartly written scripts, be it American Horror Story, be it Insidious, uh, you know, be it I Still See You, be it The Christmas Train, which I will never, ever, ever miss when that is on. Um, it's the best uh, Hallmark Christmas movie ever made, and they've made thousands of them. <laughs> okay, well, I love the North Pole one you did with Bailey Madison, too. Right, that's the and, and and that's the second best. That's right, but the Chris the Christmas train really, in all honesty and sincerity, Dermot, it really took the Hallmark Christmas movies up another whole notch from a storytelling standpoint. It really, it, well, it was. Th thank you for saying so. It, it was an incredibly beloved movie right out of the gate, and so you know this one's just going to go on and on. Yep. And I know, believe me, a lot of actors miss the, the experience of having been in a beloved movie. Mm -hmm. It's your very own experience, but I've been in one or two of those, and it's it's different than loving it or a cult movie or a genre film. Uh, you know, Christmas Train is one of the few that is just beloved, mm -hmm. and you know, throw in the holidays thing, and then you know, there's just a few that have been in Best Friends Wedding, Family Stone. Mm -hmm. Um, some people go a whole career without making that type of move. Yep. And I must say, it's very rewarding. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. But I'm curious, you know. <laughs> You're be- funny, though. Yes, but I am. I'm all over the map, and that's actually yeah. now. But I'll, I'll answer to to the quality of stuff that I'm um, that I've been asked to do on television in the last since you put a date on it, like yeah. the last five years. Um, that is because they really uh, flung open their door at the very top level mm-hmm. for me. If it's enlightened or shameless, or when uh, I have an HBO pilot I just finished uh, with Danny McBride I wouldn't be regular on it but hopefully that goes called The Righteous Gemstones mm-hmm. uh, which is just a crushingly funny you know evangelical family oh my gosh and heads. so cross your fingers on that one that's HBO chance to make, can continue to make great Danny McBride television um, and I don't know what I was saying but yeah I, um, I, I'm really grateful yeah to be to, to be in at, at this level, you know. Um, How exciting and, is it? You know, I also, much of it was just reacting to the change in the industry. Yeah. So it caused its own uh, weather system in my career. How exciting is it for you to see the, the level of scripts that are now out there on film and on television as opposed to, say, 20 years ago? I think they're a lot. Yeah. They're they're a lot smarter in many respects. You look at something like I still see you. This is a smart script. Yeah. You look at Insidious it Three. Smart. It's smart, um, but it, and everything is. All of these choices that you're making. Insidious Three. Well, Insidious Two is really the brainchild of a very smart guy, Lee well, Marvel yeah. too. So <laughs> um, that that's its own category too. Because it's like coming from the brain of this guy. You know, um, so. Uh, yeah, but you Although, know, you know the writer of this, Jason. Yeah, you'll fill in the last name. Um, is uh, is really skillful writer, though you can see from the the film. Well, I gotta ask. You got it. What do you got? What I gotta ask you, German, is now that you've done, I still see you, and you actually got to see it before we talked, um, which is a treat. What did you take away from the experience of making this film? in terms of stretching yourself as an actor that you'll now take forward into your future work? Well, thanks. I, um, I, I found the experience of playing this character its own challenge, of course, because he does have several different shades. It's probably a nice way to put it. Um, you know, and his character is uh, develops uh, in the course of the film, so it, it took a certain amount of um, craft, you'd say, mm-hmm. especially working with Scott Spear, the director, to calculate the performance. And a lot of times I don't have to do that as much um, because it's either just a little more accessible or it's not. My parts a lot of times um, may not be quite as tied into the story of the movie. So I, this part is so involved with how the, how the movie story comes, uh, comes across. So. But, you know, just to add to that, I found it a fascinating character um, with lots of different stuff to try. What I, you know, what I'm learning while I'm playing um, darker characters is that it's not always that fun. It can be, you know, great to be evil, but then when you got to, like, actually act evil and be up in somebody's face or strangling some kid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that's not fun. So I, I, I don't know how you'd use that in an article, but really to answer your question, I learned that, ooh. 
Yeah. Well, you do that so well. You do. Okay, cool. Thanks. You do it. <laughs> put it that way. You do it so well. But I just, you had me mesmerized with your turn in this film. You truly, you blew my mind, Dermot, to see how you transformed from Act 1 to Act 3 and what came. And I'm looking for a sequel. Uh, I love the idea. Print that in there, too, for sure. Uh, that's on the record, and I really thank you for your support on the film. You bet. It'll be so interesting to see how much people like it. I think they're uh, going to be real happy. And anybody that sees I Still See You, I think you're going to be really happy, too. It truly is. It's intelligent. It's smartly done. Uh, the production values are exceedingly high, as I said. The editing is rapier. The cinematography is beautiful. It is rich. Uh, there's texture, visual texture to it with denatured blues and grays and smoky areas, but then some pops with lush purples uh, and playing with elements of heat as a signature for a presence. Um, it is out in limited in ten, about 10 theaters right now. But it is on VOD and on various digital platforms. I know it's on Spectrum because I already saw it listed there. So I can't recommend it highly enough. I still see you. Uh, so please check that one out. Directed by Scott Spear. Written by Jason Fuchs. And starring Dermot Mulroney, Bella Thorne. Also Richard Harmon and Thomas Elms. Really outstanding film. And yes, I do want a sequel. And right now, I got to welcome to the show Michael Doniger. Hello, Michael. Hey, how are you there? Thanks for having me. Oh, I am thrilled to have you. Come on, it's a movie about love, baseball, love of baseball. It's it's October. It's world. It. It's World Series time. How could I not have you on the show? Come That's on, get your. Uh... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm so excited for your enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> well, as writer director of Brampton's Own, um, I've got to, this. Really is it is one of those little indie gems that pops up um, and kind of flies under the radar a bit uh, until people start seeing just really, you know, what this film is made of. And I've got to tell you, in addition to how good it looks. The story and your thematics that you have here uh, happening, I really, really like the depth that you went to here, focusing on a minor league ball player who is questioning his choices in life, be they personal, be they professional. Um, how, and we see how one impacts the other, how selfishness can impact your relationships and how sometimes the thing that you want most, you're holding on so tightly for it that you're missing everything else that's happening around you. And can I, can, can you be our spokesperson during this media tour? Because I mean, <laughs> you did a better job explaining the movie than than I probably ever could. <laughs> I'm happy to. I'm happy to. Um, I re <laughs> I really love what you know, what your core themes are that you then, and you use baseball as, you know, as the storytelling tool. Um, we've seen it with Bull mm -hmm. Durham. 
We've seen it when the Major League franchise uh, in the series of films, especially in Tom Berenger's character, uh, the same kind of yeah. things. Uh, and then when people get rel- Major League back to the minors, um, or when <laughs> or you, when you're playing for the Cleveland Indians and they don't win anything. Um, but yeah. you know, so this is it's a tried and true analogy. Baseball is very much like life. And every once mm-hmm. in a while, we see a Kevin Costner come around with that in Bull Durham. We see Tom Berenger come around facing these same questions in Major League. Now we see Alex Russell's character of Dustin come around and facing these mm-hmm. same questions. So what led you to tell uh, this story, which you really could you could have said it in any kind of world. Not necessarily the baseball world, but you could have found other worlds. But you picked the baseball world, which I'm happy about. So, <laughs> so I'm curious, what led you to tell this particular story in the world of baseball? Well, uh, again, thanks, thanks for that introduction, and and I'm so glad that uh, that the themes seem to um, you know have. Uh, uh, reached, uh, you know, you and, and, and hopefully it, they do reach an audience as well. Um, the, the story of, of baseball sort of just kind of happened, um, when I was sort of just going through my own, uh, trials and tribulations of, of being in, in, uh, in the world of entertainment and, uh, trying to make it as a filmmaker. And I think it was about six years, uh, at the point that I had started writing this uh, in LA for about six years. And I kept thinking a lot about, you know, a lot of what it was that I was sacrificing to, to chase this dream. And, um, you know, you have to sort of highs and lows of it. Um, and I just kind of saw that baseball had to offer the delineation between minor leagues and major leagues, which felt very um, similar to the sort of, you know, making it or not making it, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, in, in the world of, uh, of, of being a, you know, a filmmaker in Hollywood and all that stuff. And, and um, so it was really just a function of this is, this would be a very, uh, and vehicle in which to tell the story. Plus I, I, you know, all the movies that you mentioned before, Major League and, and um, Bull Durham, uh, and a host of others uh, are were were huge inspirations to me growing up. I mean, those those movies in the '80s and the '90s, um, you know, even for Love of the Game, I really really enjoyed that mm-hmm. one as well. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think I think Costner's made like three or four baseball movies. And uh, you know, if, uh, if there's any chance he's listening, I hope he makes three or four more. Um, but but yeah, I just kind of wanted to take my own sort of stab at at, at this and. And um, but also kind of tell it from more the psyche of the baseball player and less about the baseball itself and more about what goes into the, the mental makeup of a baseball player. Mm-hmm. And I think and, you know, one of the one of the big themes you have is the whole idea of sacrifice and choices. And that really we really see that unfold when uh, the character of Dustin, when he comes back home in the off season. And he's at home with his mom, incredibly played by Gene Smart. Um, you couldn't have done better casting she's, she's, that role than Gene. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, we we were so lucky to get her. Um, I remember when our casting directors, uh, when they came to me with the idea of Gene, 
I was like, hey, if you can get Chesapeake, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was putting together my own, uh, you know, sort of backup list in case uh, uh, Jean passed on it. I was expecting her to. And then when they called and said that she's interested, uh, it, it, it really um, it really provided the movie with just the sort of um, anchoring that it, that it needed. She mm-hmm. brings so much uh, gravitas to the story and, and to anything that she's in. But yeah. um she was very much our matriarch um, um, in spirit and on screen. Now, I've got to ask you, you know, this is your first feature. So what does that do for you as a director? Uh, it's my second feature, second actually. Feature. I, I, I wrote and directed a movie in 2011. Okay. Yeah, called This Thing with Sarah. Oh, okay. I didn't. Okay, that one is that one's a feature as well. Okay, because I haven't seen that one. I know you had done uh, some prior stuff, but I didn't know that you had done that one, too. So I'm curious, what does that do to you as a director to have somebody with the depth and breadth of experience that Gene has to be on set and be in your film? How does that affect you as a director? Yeah, I mean, it certainly gives you a confidence and and a level of validation as well. Um, uh, that 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 I think we're always looking for, and and you know we start out, and you know any writer director, you know you start out with this idea, and, and then you start, you know putting the script together, and um, you know then then you know you realize that this actually could you know turn it into a movie, you know financing might just fall into place, and casting may just fall into place, and next thing you know you're shooting it. Um, and you know, the, the odds of getting to that place of shooting are, are, are so heavily stacked against you. Um, it seems like there are so many, um, reasons for movies to not be made. And, um, the fact that movies do get made at, at all, considering all the challenges, um, there are to make them, it's, it really is a miracle. Um, and then when you have someone like Jean, um, you know, give you that validation that, you know, she wants to play a part that you wrote. Um, it, it, again, it really just goes back to confidence and, and, um, you know, I was just so, so, uh, blessed and, and, and appreciative of, of her, um, of, of her wanting to, to, to be there because she just wasn't there to, to just, you know, play a role and, mm-hmm. and, and, and service just that in particular, um, character. Um, but she, I mean, she was making brownies, <laughs> I think, I think on her last day, she brought brownies and cookies to our casting crew. And, and she really is that sort of, um, uh, you know, beautiful spirit that, um, just arises everyone, uh, up, uh, around her. And, and, um, yeah, so again, it, it just provides a level of confidence and, and validation and, and, um, you know, I, I, I hope to work with her again someday. Now, it was always your intent. You were going to direct this one, correct? Correct. Correct. So I'm curious, as you're writing, are you then starting to work on your visuals? I know I love asking directors this question because some of them, they want to finish the writing process first and then worry about any kind of visual development after the fact. Then there are others that they're actually storyboarding and plotting and planning the visual look and tone as as the script is being written. What was your approach like? Um. I I write the script first. I don't do any um, pre-planning in terms of, uh, you know, pre-visits or anything like that mm-hmm. um, prior to the script getting to a point when, when we're actually going to shoot it. Um, I think there were maybe 
seven, eight, nine drafts of this script. So you certainly don't want to jump the gun and, and start, you know, storyboarding it out on draft three when there's a lot more to go. And, and you really are always writing and rewriting up until production. So um, I usually wait until the last possible um, moment um, in terms of, um, you know, how much time I would need to then put all the previs um, uh, documents together. So I usually start um, doing all that maybe two months before production. Mm-hmm. And so I had like on this one, I had a, a 42 page, um, shot list and, um, I'm, I, I'm not good at drawing or anything like that. So, uh, there were some sequences that I, that I hired an illustrator to put together some previous moments, certainly in, in that beginning scene, that opening scene when Alex was in the, um, um, excuse me, when Dustin played by, played by Alex Kimmel when he's in the uh, the batting cages we had all that mm-hmm. sort of pre-biz and you bookended um, the, and you bookended the film and, with that too essentially yes exactly which again all, all by design I'm very much I love movies that sort of um, you know uh, come circular mm-hmm. um, and you know there are there are setups and payoffs and um, so that, those are the movies that I that I like the most, and or, or certainly connect to the most, and and so I, I like to infuse that as as best I can in the stories that I tell. But um, in terms of visually, like my, me and my uh, my cinematographer Kieran Murphy were very close, and you know for probably two months prior to shooting, we were you know just getting together and going through all this stuff, and and um, this was a 15 day shoot in order to do it in 15 days, which is just ridiculously fast um you have to have everything pre-planned and and um so we tried to do that as best we could and um you know luckily we didn't have uh too many hiccups on set and again that that really all comes from uh from preparation you know and you know what were some of the visual influences um that you and kieran had to develop the visual tonal bandwidth of the film because visually number one it's polished but it had you know you you're framing you keep things two shots um, or close-ups, but you never really go in with any extreme close-ups. But it always feel, and you typically have it framed so that when the character of Dustin, he's front and center, and everybody else is more or less peripherally, metaphorically speaking, to how peripheral everyone is in his life. And you know, and I really loved seeing that. And be consistent throughout the film like that. Thank you, thank you for saying that. I mean, that's uh, love to hear these questions. These are these are things that we spend so much time on, um, and and usually they go unnoticed. Um, and and so to hear uh, that that there is a level of appreciation for it that uh, it's exciting for us to hear and, and rewarding. Um, my my influences, at least visually. Speaking director wise, I very much love, of course, Spielberg and Fincher, and and what they do is they have these very polished, um, uh, these very polished looks where um, you know there's a lot of the camera movement, but it's always it's always uh, steady, and there's mm-hmm. not a whole lot of handheld unless the scene uh, calls for it, um, and I like to stick to that approach as well as best I can, so long as it's it it it, it helps in the storytelling but mm-hmm. those are the movies that I, I i like to or those are the movies that i connect with the most and in, in that visual style um so we had you know a lot of tracks laid down and 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 a lot of um steady cam movements and all that sort of stuff whenever we were moving the camera around and there were very few scenes that were handheld um and the the ones that were again it, it, it was for emotional reasons um 
And uh, I'm sorry, I forget the rest of your question. <laughs> oh, no, just, you know, were there any films in particular that you may that you looked at in order to develop the overall um, yeah, visual so, visual tone? Yeah, so I don't know if you, if, if you noticed, but certainly when uh, the beginning of the movie, when Dustin's in the minor leagues, there's a different color palette Definitely. Uh, than there is for the rest of the movie. And one thing that we wanted to do was we wanted it to feel a little colder when Dustin's in the minor leagues. And we wanted it to feel a little bit more suffocating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he returns home to, uh, to his hometown, Brampton, it, it opens up a little bit more uh, in both in color um, and, and, uh, and not as many sort of claustrophobic sort of uh, close-ups. Um, and so that was all by design. And, and um, you know, we certainly looked at Whiplash, which is one of my favorite movies of the last five years mm-hmm. um, for that beginning and really wanted to show the intensity of Dustin and, and how much baseball means to him and, and his preparation. So that's a, very much so uh, sort of how we designed it visually in the beginning. Um, and then, uh, toward, you know, in, in the... Uh, for the other moments for the rest of the movie, when when they return back to Brampton, it uh, it was more just uh, I just wanted it to feel like a almost kind of like a just a family drama. I mean, mm-hmm. I looked at um, I looked at Garden State quite a bit, um, you know, but it was it was really more about that that opening. I really wanted to sell the intensity of the minor leagues, and and that's where we looked at you know Friday Night Lights and and um, and Whiplash and and some of those movies. Those, those sports movies or, or movies that really showcase the intensity that, that one sort of has when, when um, you know, just solely focusing on, on one particular aspect of their life and, and, and their career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the opening scenes are, at, are, you know, I absolutely love them. You know, as he's, you know, talking to the younger players, okay, if he comes and he touches your shoulder, you're in, you're going to the show. Um, and then he's like, yeah come and see the skip when you know when you're dressed and he thinks he's going too and the the crushing the crushing look that then sets the film in motion that no honey you're still in the minors uh uh that real and then you immediately follow that up with dustin and his girlfriend and she's complaining about non-committal, and you know she only sees him when he's not on the road, and he comes home in off season, and she wants more than that. And he's like, "But you don't understand. You've already laid the groundwork visually for us and tonally with his mindset, but then you follow it through with immediately follow it through with dialogue. It's like, look, you don't understand. This is my life. You know, I've got to get this. I've got to do this. And in that moment, you really." appreciate the obsession and the single-minded focus that he has and yeah yeah and and, um thank thank you for noticing that and and, um i I believe in starting a movie off very strong uh visually Mm -hmm. um i prefer to show and and not tell and um you know until we absolutely have to and you know the opening of, of any movie i think is very important um at least if you're telling a movie through the eyes of, of your protagonist, certainly there are movies that, you know, have, have multiple um, different characters that you're seeing the story from. But this one in particular, uh, we see it uh, through Dustin's eyes in every scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so it was just so important to showcase what his day-to-day is and, 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 and what baseball means to him. Because ultimately, what baseball means to him, um, the importance he sort of put into it is it's really um, just as, 
much as he's as as he's let go of of uh, you know his family and 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 his old friends and his ex girlfriend and all that. You know, so it's it's kind of like a zero sum game. He's put everything in a baseball and he doesn't have anything left to mm-hmm. to put into the rest of uh, his his life, which is ultimately um, what it is that he has to figure out. He has to figure out essentially balance. Yeah, and you know that's where your character of you know his former BFF Gavin comes into play, which. Kevin Lineman plays beautifully um, in this. I really <laughs> love his this zealous, over-the-top, hey, I'm still wearing my high school letterman jacket. Um, but we see there that <laughs> it really gives us this great two sides of the coin. It's like, here we have Dustin. He's given up everything. He's pursuing his single-minded dream of making it to the show. And then we have Gavin who he's he's happier with forget about worrying about a career or a future it's like he's living in the now he has friends his friends from high school he has friends in the neighborhood he's loved in a, by everybody he's happy uh and to see this striking contrast in the two it really it 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 makes this also a cautionary tale of you know, not finding a balance within yourself because you can end up as Dustin with nothing in your life but for that one thing, and it still isn't what you want. Yeah, very, very much so. And the the, the idea of um, Dustin returning home and everyone has sort of like passed him by. You mm-hmm. know, he he. he um, he was once a celebrated athlete, and and we are constantly reminded that by uh, of that by all of the articles that uh, Dustin comes across um, in the local bars and, and and all that sort of stuff uh, when he does return home. So he sees you know the person that you know, the town expected him to be. And now when he returns, um, everyone has moved on. Nobody cares mm-hmm. who he used to be. Um, and you know his his mom has moved on after the death of of her husband and Dustin's father and and um you know all his friends have sort of moved on and his ex-girlfriend is now dating the town dentist who everyone loves and uh, you know so dustin kind of like has no one to to sort of like live in 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 the the town of branson that he once knew um mm-hmm. the town has sort of changed and it's all evolved and, and he's sort of still stuck and and what gavin is is um Basically, the the person who Dustin could become if he doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, if he if he isn't too careful. Now, Gavin and Dustin are very two different people. Like you said, Gavin is very content with where he is in life, um, but that's not where Dustin wants to be. Right. And um, you know, so it, it very much is some sort of a cautionary tale. And and uh, and and you said it. Kevin Linehan plays it. Uh, Beautifully. Uh, he's, he's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, he just, I was in hysterics watching him, which is great because it also, that emotional tonal balance, it offsets the seriousness and the introversion that Alex Russell brings to Dustin. So I really like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I love that counter that counterweight you have going on. Thank you. Yeah, and and. Uh, to be honest, it was it was a tough tone to try and figure out because we certainly start the movie off in a very dark, dramatic place, and then you know when we get back to Branton, it opens up a little bit more, and and it, they're they're 
is more comedy infused in it, much at uh, you know at the hands of of Kevin's character Gavin, mm-hmm. and um, you know so it is a, a balance, a, a tonal balance. But um, you know when you have the right actors doing it, um, you know I think I think Ke- uh, Kevin was was fantastic, and then also Alex did did uh, did such a great job of, of yeah. playing the straight man off of him, and 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 you know playing the audience. Um, you know, reacting to the absurdity of, of some of the things that it is that, that Gavin says. Yeah, I mean, just so well done. And part of finding that balance, in addition to the performances, it caught, falls to your editor. So how, how, what were your considerations working with your editor, Brad McLaughlin? You know, how challenging was the edit on this to find that, to, that emotional tonal balance? within this Dustin's world and the world and the world of Brampton. Yeah. Um, well, I'd, I'd worked with Brad before, um, on a movie and he, um, I really like what, what he brings to it. And, and Brad, Brad is, is so, um, he's just a fantastic editor and, and, and he's worked on some of the recent star Wars movies and, you know, so, but he's also done some dramas as well, some studio dramas and some studio comedies. And, and so he's kind of, um, he's been exposed to so many different genres. Mm. And um, so going into it, you know, he, he's already had all this experience and, and for me, no matter who it is that I'm working with, I look for, can they, can they handle, the role uh, from from a talent perspective, do they have the tools in their toolbox to, to get the job done? Mm-hmm. But then, secondly, and and it's really one and one a. It's you know, can I work with them? How is our communication going to be? Because um, it very much is a collaborative process. And Brad and I, um, you know, because we had worked on a movie together prior to this, um, we do have so, uh, sort of shorthand and and. Um, you know, it's the same thing I have with with my cinematographer Kieran. Um, you know, is that shorthand? And and again, a lot of this goes into the prep work beforehand and talking about the tone and 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 bringing up comps before we even shoot it. So so we know what what it is that that we're you know we're not trying to shoot a movie and, and guess what it's going to be in the <laughs> editing. We, we we have a vision for it prior to shooting it, and then every decision we make along the way is in service of that. And then hopefully in the edit, we have enough of, uh, you know, we didn't make too many mistakes and, and, and uh, we have uh, somewhat of the vision that it is that we set out with. So what would you say was the most challenging aspect of bringing Brampton's own to life? Um, it's always, uh, it's, uh, I mean, financing is always hard. <laughs> yeah, that's a given. Um, we just we just yeah, assume right out of the box that that's a problem. Right. Yes, financing is always hard. Um, the hardest thing. I mean, honestly, I was so lucky um, to be supported by my producing partner, Marky Cristofaro, who we've now worked on a couple of movies together, and we we have a shorthand, and and um, he's so good at what he does in running production that it allows me the the freedom to sort of focus on the creative, and 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 so that's already a, uh, this this great relationship that that we have, and and then all the actors that we cast. Um, they were, I mean, this really doesn't happen all the time. It rarely happens uh, where everyone is just really so nice to work with and they're all talented. That's a given. Um, But they're, they were just so nice. And so when you have this sort of confluence of, 
uh, factors of, of talented people and, and all, everyone there is all all there for the right reasons. This isn't a big budget movie. Nobody's there for the money. Um, you know, it's, 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 they're there for the work and because they want to, you know, make something good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it makes my job much easier, but if I had to pick one thing that was the most challenging, it's probably just the speed in which we, we had to work. I mean, we had so many locations to, um, to go about. I mean, you'll probably notice there are quite a few uh, wardrobe changes in a lot of locations. And when you're doing that in a 15 day schedule, that just puts a lot of pressure on everyone involved. And, um, you know, but uh, we knew that going in, we knew that months in advance. And, you know, um, so we, we made the, the proper, um, you know, adjustments to, to figure out a way to, to do it. And, um, you know, some days, I mean, that everything that was shot in that bar, all those bar scenes that was shot in one day. And wow. And, you know, like that, that was 13 pages right there. Um, and that's just a lot. It's a lot for, for the actors. It's a lot for, uh, the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there, we got everything. And, uh, so, you know, everyone was, was game for it. And, and, uh, I'm just so appreciative that, that everyone, um, was willing to, to not just do their job, but do their job at a very accelerated pace. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, we are all out of time for the show today. This has been an absolute joy, Michael. But before you go, Friday, the film opens October 19th, correct? Correct. October 19th. Uh, We're in uh, 10 10 theaters uh, across the country, 10 different cities. We're uh, here in L.A., at the Lemley up in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And um, you can also find us on uh, your uh, VOD platforms. I think we'll be on um, pay-per-view and all that stuff. It uh, won't be hard uh, to, to find us. Just type us into Google and it'll, it'll pop right up. Fabulous. Michael, thank you so much. And perfect time, Brampton Zone, baseball movie. Obviously, the Phillies aren't playing anything, so I have to watch baseball movies to supplement my my tears over them not making the playoffs. So as the numbers dwindle down, people, here's a baseball movie about love, about baseball, and the love of baseball. Michael, thank you so much, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Carol, thanks so much for uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. And that is all the time we have today. We'll see you next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.